0: This year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping Await you for a limited time only at alienware.com slash deals. That's alienware.com slash deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we're going to celebrate the life and career of a rock and roll giant. Charlie Watts, the drummer for the Rolling Stones for six decades, died on August 24th at the age of 80. And it was kind of a shock to everyone. We knew that he was taking a leave from the upcoming Stones tour for a medical issue, but no one expected this. And I think everyone's just taking it in. It's a huge loss. We have with us Rob Sheffield and Hank Steamer, who are going to talk a little bit about Charlie's legacy, but first, let's hear from a couple of his peers. Here's a bit of an interview I did with Max Weinberg, of course, the drummer for the East Street Band, and a friend of Charlie's, shortly after he heard the news.
1: I have a beautiful note uh, from Keith uh, that he wrote after he read The Big Beat, where he references Charlie, you know, uh, and I, I'm feeling for for Keith because there are many myself included many would be charlie watts type drummers but there was only and there will
0: ever only be one charlie watts hmm. and in peace and you know i can tell you this on board the song born in the usa when bruce pulled out that riff i went right to street fighting man
1: right and i've been listening to it a lot that day you know we were recording the album Born USA and when I was laying down that drum part, I'm thinking, okay, I'm Charlie Watts. I'm going to do my best Charlie Watts. Even to the little, little eighth note, bah, 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 which is right off of Street Fighting Man. Mm. So I'm I'm recalling him fondly, but I'm, you know, not long ago, uh, last time I tweeted, we lost Roger Hawkins, yeah, who was a friend of mine. You know, all the guys in the book became deep friends and you know, uh, words can't express what Charlie Watts meant to me as an individual and certainly as an icon of, of music uh, and not just in rock. And he was a wonderful artist too. You know, he was a wonderful graphic designer and artist. Um, and just, <laughs> here's another quick story. But the day I interviewed him was at his apartment in, on the river in London and uh, 1981 and uh, Ian Stewart, Ian Stewart was uh, the, the reason I got that interview in 1980, 81, he set it up. I'm not quite sure how I got to Ian Stewart, but uh, he set it up with Charlie and I was their guest at the arms concert uh, in at a, the Royal Albert Hall. So, you know, Ian Stewart who knew everybody. He took me under his wing. So I felt like, you know, I, I felt like royalty, you know? Anyway, so I go to his apartment, and um, Shirley, uh, his wife, wasn't feeling well that day. So he was so attentive to her, bringing her ice, uh, bringing her drinks. He kept interrupting, and I have this long tape, bringing, you know, interrupting, I I must see after Shirley, and he'd go into the bedroom. But he gave me, you know, an incredible interview. And, you know, when we talked about these, you know, Panama Francis or the drummers that he admired, You know, there was a kinship and uh, you know, I know how close Steve Jordan was with him. uh, And anyone who ever came in his orbit, you know, he'd be standing backstage in his uh, Rolling Stones logo tracksuit, twirling his sticks, having a conversation with drummers and people in the drum industry who would come to pay their respects to him. And he was always so gracious. And uh, The one story my family was involved with that is just priceless and it comes up every once in a while they played madison square garden i think i forget what tour it was but he invited us and my kids were old enough you know jay now of course is rock's greatest drummer according to modern drummer mm. he was uh, you know he was a teenager my there were, he was probably 13 or 12. we go to see him and, and there's a there's like a receiving line to meet to say hello to charlie in new york and he has a tent backstage is on tap so we finally, you know, there were maybe 30 people. We get up there and you're ushered in by his manager, a wonderful woman named Sherry Daly. And, you know, he's, he's, he's gonna go on, but for the four minutes, four or five minutes we're with him, you're the only person
0: that exists in the world. And he always wore his blue Rolling Stone Tongue logo
1: Windbreaker. <laughs> and then, and we're talking and I, you know, my sons learning how to play the drums and, uh, Um, And the first thing he said was, well, you know, your father and I uh, love Buddy Rich. You must study Buddy Rich. And he goes, oh, Mr. Watts, I know Buddy Rich. (laughs) And uh, so, but then Charlie took my hand to shake it.
2: And in classic British understatement, he said, so where are you off to now? Which was like it's time for the next people. It was the <laughs> classiest brush off. <laughs> and,
0: and
1: by the way, myself and Jay, have both used
3: that.
0: <laughs> and David Brown of Rolling Stone talked to Patrick Carney of the Black Keys to get a bit of a tribute to Charlie Watts. And let's hear that.
4: You got to play with them on stage, and you got to you got to do some dual drumming with Charlie. Almost ten yeah, years ago. One, I think I think it's the only time I've ever done that. <laughs> Well, we'll start with. Can you, I mean, do you grow up a Stones fan? And as a drummer, of can you just speak? Was he an influence on you? And what well, was I, it made him special?
3: When I was a kid, um, I was allowed to watch like shit I probably shouldn't be allowed to. Do it. And so there was a show about Vietnam called Tour of Duty. Okay. <laughs> when I was about seven, like 1987, uh, the closing theme song to the show was Painted Black. I was like, this is the coolest fucking song when I was a really little kid and uh, watching, you know, like really crazy Vietnam (laughs) shows. And, uh, but my dad loved, you know, would make me tapes with Stones, but that one song just always stuck out, like, you know, as a kid. And, you know, of course, as I got older, got into music for real and just got past the vanilla ice and things like that. Um, You know, the Stones were one of the, you know, Beatles Stones first couple bands I really knew a lot about. And uh, it's weird. It's like, Today, of course, I listened back, and I just what I heard was like, oh, I was like, oh, I play drums like I try to play drums like Charlie Watts. <laughs> like yeah. I don't, I don't try to play like John Bonham or Phil Ward. I I try to play like Charlie.
4: Yeah, when you say when you say play like him, what what was it about his feel yeah, or whatever? The thing that, is that
3: you know the feel of the Stones is like a is like a hard kind of stomp. You know, it's just constantly into the backbeat, and there's no bullshit. You know, and I think look at a song like Brown Sugar, right, where it's like, he's playing the 4 tom, you know, throughout the verses, and then he goes to the hi-hat and lists the song, and just like, the, the, sim- the very mm-hmm. simple, natural, it's just a natural thing, and just like, what I remember about playing with the Stones, aside from getting to meet, meet them, and little moments without being on stage, you know, looking up and seeing, you know, Keith Richards, and, Ronnie Wood and Mick Jagger, and then looking over, and I kind of hit this slub note, like it's a 4-4 four, four stomp, 4 and the 4 song, we did this Bo Diddley right. know, song, so it's like, it's basically, I didn't mess it up, you can't really mess it up, but I turned the snare beat around or something, and Charlie, I looked at Charlie, and he looked at me, with this big, huge smile, and he knew, he knew what I had done, and he just thought it was so funny. Uh,
4: the, did the other guys but, give, shoot you different looks? <laughs>
3: the Charlie. No, and, yeah. no. Unless you were a drummer, you wouldn't know what was happening. And also, you know, that's the cool thing about the Stones is that their whole, their, I think that their, the feel about the Stones it's all is always been about trying to find this kind of American swagger. This, you know, I guess "stomp" is the word. But I was listening to some recordings they did with Ry Cooder, and it's just all about the feel. And you know, it's like from you know Keith Richards. You know, his, his guitar playing is kind of like technically sloppy, but it. If he played it any better, they wouldn't sound like the Stones. And it's just the way that Charlie kind of just sits in there, and it's it's like it's no frills, but it is just he's right on top of the the sound. You know, he is like the backbone. I mean, it's very it's very for if you're not a drummer, you're not used to into the nuance of what's happening in the swing and the beat. Like uh, it's hard to appreciate. Were there certain songs you listened back to today that? I think the, I think if I think I think when you start hearing the Stones play with Steve Jordan, you're instantly be able to tell that Charlie's gone. He's a great drummer, but there's just something slightly sloppy, but but really musical. It's just there's no. It's like he's not thinking when he's playing. You know what I'm saying?
4: Right. It, they, he had an almost like a light touch in a way. Like you said, it wasn't John Bonham. And, oh no! It was. Like, yeah. It was.
3: A, it was all this. It was all swing. Mhm. Yeah, and I'll, most people I know who aren't drummers, they, the first thing they mention is they notice that he doesn't hit the hi hat sometimes makes it the snare drum or something. But you know, I think that if you listen to the beat on Satisfaction, you know, it's kind of like a, it's like a derivative of a Motown beat or something. But it is just, it's so so fucking simple. But I don't know if it had been really applied to rock and roll prior to that. You know, and mm. so that it's also the painted black beat, and it's also the beat to you know, hundreds and hundreds of rock and roll songs after, afterwards. Right. So,
4: Which stone songs did you grow up learning to play in the drum
3: part, like Painted Black, for example, since you had I've never, there. I've never, like, learned to play a song on the drums, technically. Like, okay. Never, not, I never, I never, like sit around with headphones on, like, I've got to figure this fill out. You know what I mean? I, I sat around with Dan being like, it would be cool if we had a band that could make you write songs. So when we would try to do covers, we would sit there and learn to play it together. Maybe it we'll reference something, but I never really tried to learn right, like, right, right. verbatim what yeah. a beat. Yeah. But I do know that in the studio, you know, like uh, a fast beat's definitely been
0: a touchstone. I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that, and that's DashPass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer, and there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with DashPass by DoorDash. With DashPass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders, which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this. DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average, so it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more. After signing up for DashPass, subject to change, terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. Again, MUSICNOW24. Subject to change, terms apply. Today, hip hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that
1: changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire, fire yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday.
3: Yes, and you brought me to
1: day life
0: Life-size, cardboard <laughs> cutout.
1: This is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop.
5: Follow Class of 88 on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Again, we're paying tribute today to a rock and roll giant, Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones, died August 24th at the age of 80, and I have with me to talk about his life and his legacy and his playing, Hank Steamer and Rob Sheffield. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hank, let's start with you. I mean, you're a great person to have with us today as uh, our resident actual drummer and also something of an expert in jazz, which is Something that Charlie drew on extensively, that was what he loved, uh, was jazz and, and jazz drummers. Maybe just talk a little bit about what Charlie took from jazz, his roots in jazz, and some of the drummers who influenced them and how they influenced him.
6: Yeah, well, you know, just just listening back to the interviews over the past few days, um, you know, jazz was, and and I got this a little bit from uh, Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers when I talked to him because he had in, interviewed Charlie back in 2018. But really, if if anyone seemingly sat down and talked to Charlie Watts uh, about music about anything, he would always direct the conversation back to jazz, and and it wasn't just sort of like a like a name checking thing. Like his knowledge went incredibly deep. You know, he talked to um, to chat about how Chico Hamilton on the early Jerry Mulligan recordings was a big influence, he talked about you know Miles Davis, Benny Goodman, you know Charlie Parker constantly. I mean he was he was like a real head. He talked about how a friend, uh, uh, his friend, and, and he used to sort of sit around and like you know they, they had the credits memorized on the Louis Armstrong Hot Five and Hot Seven recordings. This was the you know the the kind of the soil that he came out of. Like as a fan, and, and you know Rob mentioned in his in his great tribute that. His engagement with rock and roll was just sort of not, you know, that's not where he was coming from at the time that he entered the Stones. But I think that I think that Charlie Watts, you know, I, th- I think there's a, you know, it's o- it's often said with so many of these rock drummers of this generation, I think it's it's often said that these people are coming out of jazz, and I think you can say this out of so many people, whether that's Ginger Baker, who's like a rough contemporary or someone like, uh, you know, Bill Ward or Bill Bruford or, or John Bonham. I mean, it's it's a whole generation of British rock drummers who are coming out of jazz. I think it's interesting, though, to look at, like, you know, what they took out of it. And I think that someone like Ginger Baker, who was obviously a super, like, flamboyant player, you know, very interested in, like, you know, playing solos and, and, and just really, like, kind of being out front in a way that maybe a, a drummer like a Buddy Rich would be or an Art Blakey or one of these type of jazz drummers. I think that it's not so simple to say that Charlie Watts is just like straight up coming out of jazz because it's more like, you know, what school or, or mindset of jazz, you know, because the fact that he cited Chico Hamilton on these Jerry Mulligan records is very telling Chico Hamilton, you know, a West Coast drummer who's very known for sort of tasteful, understated playing. I've also heard Charlie Watts shout out Paul Motion of the uh, early Bill Evans trio and very much these drummers who, who were very comfortable in an accompanying role. And, and essentially being background musicians and that and that not being like an insult or sort of second class, but just literally that was their function in the band. Charlie Watts often talked about how he, you know, being a drummer, it's like he wasn't going to sit around and play drums by himself. You know what I'm saying? Like he was he was very comfortable with the idea of accompanying and he often said he had no interest in playing drum solos. So I think that you do hear jazz in Charlie Watts. Um, but it's almost like in this very subtle shading. You're not going to hear him playing like ting, ting, to ting, you know, traditional jazz rhythm, like the, the way you might hear Ginger Baker peppering that in with cream. These long, like, improvisational excursions. Like Charlie, Charlie Watts is essentially a a pop drummer working in like a backbeat format, and he was very committed to the like art and craft of a of a backbeat. And, and Rob, I know you quoted that that amazing quote from Charlie where he was talking about how rock music is dance music to him, like it wasn't a progressive music. It wasn't really about, you know, to him, jazz represented a progressive music. Rock more example, you know, represented kind of laying in the pocket and just kind of laying it down. And, I think that his art was really laying it down and also making it feel as I I know that Daryl Jones, uh, the longtime bassist for the Stones, has has referred to like a a swagger that he brought to it. And to me, like, that's where the jazz comes in. It's not like you're going to hear jazz figures in his playing. You're going to hear like a sensibility to executing a backbeat and making it feel... Just giving it that sort of human feeling that, that is, you know, it's like you could have a drum machine playing behind the Rolling Stones and, you know, some people might not notice it, but you need that little, he puts some sort of like a, I guess I would say like almost like a grease on it. There's like a slight little, little accent that he puts on the backbeat that makes it just feel good at, at whatever tempo he was playing. And I think to me, that's the jazz in Charlie Watts. Well
0: said. I think Max Weinberg in a different interview pointed out that Al Jackson, uh, the Stax Vault drummer, was one of the guys who who popularized this this thing that's so essential to what we think of this groove. Is this laying back on the backbeat, which is literally playing the you know the the two and the four of every bar. You're playing it milliseconds after where a metronome would play it, right? And so that's that's where a lot of the swing comes from. That's where a lot of the feel comes from. And that's a huge thing that that Charlie Watts tended to do, right?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I, I was listening to uh. K hear me knocking earlier and thinking about how the, the beat to that, it's just to the point where it would be late if he hit it any, hit the snare any later on that kind of like halftime, like beautiful halftime groove on that. And I think you hear a lot of this in Ringo Starr too. I mean, this is what we think of when we think of like that generation of British drummers. That's why we love the feel of these players, especially those two, because they're like the backbeat sort of kings. But yeah, absolutely. I think that it's all about like laying back and really, you know, how how do you drive the band while also somehow seeming relaxed? And I think that was what everyone marvelled at with Charlie Watts, like when watching it, like how could he be so unflappable? Um, in the midst of this kind of like um, very like charged up atmosphere. It's almost like a he, he like centered the thing with his personality somehow. And Rob, I know you've written about, you know, just his blatantly seeming unimpressed by like the circus of the stones or whatever, or kind of the, the peacock nature of Mick Jagger or something like that. It's just like this it was evident in his personality and it was like, he just kept everything on an even keel, which again has nothing to do with like what a ginger Baker would do or something like that. Who would, who be all about sort of like providing his own kind of like thunderous uh, commentary and, and really, you know, charging ahead. And Watts is like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to like keep this baseline and you can kind of like set a watch by it, you know? Totally. I, I remember reading an interview where Charlie Watts
2: said that when he was on stage with the Stones, he would fantasize in his head that he was Elvin Jones and that he would just be pretending he was El- Elvin Jones on stage, which is such a mind-blowing thing. It blew my mind to read that as a teenager because I, I thought everybody else is is fantasizing about being Charlie Watts. But to him, he was like, this is okay, but it's not Elvin Jones.
6: Well, well, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. And again, like these interviews, when he was talking to Chad Smith or many of the other ones, like he's talking about having, like he's collecting Tony Williams' Ride symbols or or Mel Lewis's like you know green sparkle drum kit and putting them in a warehouse and even he is saying like I don't even know why I have this stuff I don't even know what I intend to do with it it's just more that like he was so he was so enamored of that art form and in a way Rob like as you pointed out that he just didn't seem to be with rock and roll like Rocky almost it was almost dismissive like the way that he would talk about it you know like in this this whole thing about you know um, I think that quote was, progression was Miles Davis playing, you know, modal jazz, you can't do that in rock, or something. And and it's like, it's amazing that this, like, not being impressed with that idiom was somehow what allowed him to be, to excel in it or something? Totally. Because he, I mean, that, that really kind of sums it up, that he became the
2: greatest of rock and roll drummers because he was aspiring to something so it, it kept him from being unself conscious about it. I mean, a lot of like, what you said about that generation of British players being often very jazz influenced, sometimes in ways that were really kind of showy and silly, you know, like a, a lot of like the British musicians from that generation would do something like cover pork by hat on a record or something like that as, as a, yes, I've listened to these records, kind of like flashing their, their cards of credit. Whereas like, Charlie Watts never did anything like that on stage or on a record he was very focused it's almost like the way you're describing it what he took from jazz is almost like a uh, an ethic you know a, a code of you know, a a jazz drummer does this, serves this. It's not about getting attention.
6: Yeah, and when you saw him play, like I was was just watching a clip, I think he was on like the Dennis Miller show with his jazz quintet in like the 90s. And it's just, it's incredible because he was always name checking people like Tony Williams, like these super progressive type of jazz drummers. When you saw him play jazz, it just sounded like, 1950 or even earlier. You know what I mean? Like he's just sitting there very gently like playing, you know, he, he was very happy in the accompanying role in those contexts as well. He's sitting here playing brushes behind Bernard Fowler singing like Lover Man or something like that. And also there was that amazing, um, he had this orchestra in, in the 80s, which I was sort of unfamiliar with until recently, but, but he sort of stocked it with all these jazz musicians and there were actually three drummers in it. And he's kind of just like sitting back and letting John Stevens, who's this really notice this like free jazz free improv drummer like basically play their leading role and even in that context where it has his name on it he's just like almost you you have to really pay attention to even remember that Charlie Watts is sitting there it's really remarkable how self effacing he could be you know
0: it's interesting to read interviews with him including the previously unpublished uh, Michael Gilmore interview that we posted on rollingstone.com which i recommend you know the extent to which Keith specifically introduced Charlie to a lot of this music that meant everything to to Mick and Keith. He made him sort of listen to Elvis Presley as a musician, which he he had he had heard Elvis like everyone else in his generation, but he hadn't really been paying it attention to it that way, to pay attention to DJ Fontana or whoever's playing and what was good about it. And and it seems like Keith in that way, and it, you know, if you ever you can talk to Stones and all of them have that record collector geek side to them which is so fascinating you know I know that I've talked about this before but you know you just start Mick talking about blues harmonica and all of a sudden this entirely different person emerges where he's just literally geeking out and it's so extraordinary and that's who they were they were you know toting these records but they were but Mick and Keith were toting different records and in the way that your friend you know it's like it might not be your core thing but it's the thing that your friend teaches you about and you do learn it that's how he learned the rock and roll stuff, and I, I think so probably even the Chess record stuff was came from Keith, you know, and and he did, of course, learn and 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 respect that stuff. It just wasn't like his core stuff, which is very interesting to me. Rob, I wonder if you could just talk about Charlie as the persona as well, just like the character of Charlie Watts that we got to know over six decades. Well,
2: he was someone who famously was married to the same woman for fifty seven years while being a member of the Rolling Stones. That combination is so much cognitive dissonance, and even the other stones were really kind of blown away by it. I mentioned in my tribute a fantastic nineteen eighty one cover story on Keith interview. And the question is, do you and the stones do you hang out when you're not making music together? You know, do you see each other socially? And Keith's only response to that is to start talking about Charlie and how he gets to Charlie visits every couple months. He doesn't mention anybody else in the band or even notice that they might be, you know, like obviously the interviewer is hoping he's got some Mick and Keith hanging out off the clock stories and Keith cannot stop talking about Charlie and how much he wants Charlie to approve of him. And that was always some of the fascinating things that all the other stones were competing with each other to be Charlie's favorite. So There's, you know, the beautiful dynamic that, you know, I always love whenever Mick would put out a solo album and people would attack it and Keith would say something really funny and nasty in in public about how terrible the latest Mick solo album was. And Mick's retort was always, well, Charlie liked it. And it was almost like that was the court of final opinion that they could all agree to. And you could really tell Mick did not care whether Keith liked these records. He only worried about whether Charlie said that he liked them. And Keith only worried about what Charlie thought of him as a musician or a person. He had that mystique that was so intimidating to the other Stones, and nobody ever intimidated the Rolling Stones, and that was part of the the Charlie mystique. And for those of us who you know were MTV kids and we grew up seeing the Stones videos, you know like "Start Me Up," a classic one; "Hang Fire," another classic one. You know Mick is out front, like prancing away, geniusly. Uh, Keith and Ronnie are posing. And, you know, Bill Wyman is in the back rolling his eyes, and there's these funny moments during these videos where Mick turns away from the camera, and you can see it, and tries to make eye contact with Charlie just to get a facial expression out of him. And it's funny how it just does not work. There's, you know, a couple moments in the Start Me Up video where Charlie's like, oh my God, you want a facial expression? Fine, fine, I'll try. But it, it's a thing... That's not what he did. And that's kind of goes back to the sort of the jazz code that Hank was talking about, that, you know, he was, he was a working musician, not a star. And I think that's part of the reason that his death is hitting everybody so hard. I'm always surprised people are saying so much that I, I didn't expect that this would affect me the way it did, but Charlie epitomized the working musician. You know, I was really excited to see him back on the road, back with the stones. I was more excited about my next stone show, than my first one. With Charlie, there was always a sense he was a working musician. He was in it for the long haul. And, you know, I wanted to hear him next time. I was curious about the work he still had ahead of him.
0: I mean, you know, stating the obvious, but we just hadn't lost a member of the Rolling Stones for quite some time. Since the Uh, 60s. Yeah. So, there's there's just a broader thing about that. It's just... I mean, everyone understood that we're talking about an 80-year-old man and, and, and even, you know, had he stayed healthy and around, there was going to be a finite limit of how of no one had ever been a rock and roll drummer into their 80s. It just hasn't been done. So there was, he was already pushing the physical limits of, of this thing and it's, and that's worth talking about as well. I mean, I one of the things that the other guys in the band, because I did all these Stones interviews over the years. And I don't think I ever talked to Charlie once. He just didn't he didn't talk. But what they would say about him is that he was in pain after the shows in the later years. Like he was, you know, he would have to ice himself down at best. And that all that effortlessness was actually a lot of effort. But, you know, the other thing is, and Hanky you could probably speak to this, is that Drummers have always said to me. I remember Trey, cool from Green Day, and other people saying that the the only way that you can keep going is to be more like Charlie Watts, as far as playing correctly and not trying to destroy the drum kit and just getting yourself into into a proper way of playing as possible, or else you're hopeless. So there there was that. I mean, I think his jazz trained sort of approach allowed him to keep going beyond what many drummers could ever manage, right?
6: Yeah, I mean, he didn't smash the drums, you know what I mean? Like, And I think that that's, again, I mean, just think about all the contemporaries and just sort of like what became of them, you know, like whether it's Keith Moon or... Or, or Bonham or whoever. I mean, I mean, he was, a, you know, and also you can look at the size of his kit too. I mean, I think that's an obvious thing that's easy to overlook. I mean, I mean, he's sitting there playing just a little four piece, four piece kit. Like he never, he never sort of, you know, felt the need to fill the stage up with that. And it wasn't an athletic display with him. You know what I mean? And drumming is, um, you know, th- there's a theatrical element of it, you know, I mean, you could speak of Bonham, you could speak of like Dave Grohl, whoever, but I think people in general, they, they like to see a drummer like sort of kicking, kicking the crap out of the kid. And that's a, that's a fun thing to watch. But Charlie, you know, he took a different path. He would often talk about like a player like Joe Morello, the, uh, the Dave Brubeck drummer. And I, and I think if you, if, if you look at clips of like a player like that, who, who it was about like the sophistication and the finesse. And that's what's exciting about watching a Joe Morello, as opposed to um, and Rob. It's really interesting. You say you say Elvin Jones, who who is you know was a hard like a really hard hitting player and kind of you know had a very like deep like rumbling sound and 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 Charlie was it was just much more streamlined. I've just been sort of like a being a lot of the early stones, like, you know, 70s stuff and then and then kind of flashing forward to like 80s, 90s beyond and just thinking about, you know, there's all these like we said, there's all these sort of paradoxes about about this guy. But the thing that keeps striking me is somebody who's who's like rhythmic sensibilities are coming out of like the 40s and 50s and then who's playing these very streamlined backbeats that made a lot of sense, like let's say in the 60s and then somehow this rhythmic language translates completely. To to like almost a disco feel on something like "Miss You" and, I, and again, I'm sure you too can cite a lot of other examples of of just somehow the same Charlie Watts rhythm made sense in these later times without really much of an adjustment at all. Like, how is that possible?
0: I think part of it is just his very lack of attachment to rock and roll as a thing meant that he saw himself as just as sort of a drummer, as a professional drummer. And if the style shifting a little bit, the same way a, a big band drummer might shift to the next thing because you're a working musician, I think it was part of that mentality. It's not, I mean, it's only if you're very into yourself, right? I think that you would refuse to, to shift styles and listen to what people are doing and move. If you thought of yourself as this, you know, as some monster of rock who does their thing and won't do anything else, then it might be harder. But I think he was just, I think he, he had ears. And was just willing and interested to adapt. I saw him talking in one of the interviews about uh, about the Meters, uh, not a disco band, but he, you know, he, that that came well after you know his formative years. But he he was obviously listening very closely to that. So he, I think that's a lot of it. Rob, how do you see it? Well, definitely. I mean,
2: he was always a part of it. Is just the marvel that the Stones, it's especially in the '80s, when all the other bands of their generation we uh, were making all the mistakes that the Stones weren't making at that time. Everybody was getting really into overdubs and textures and um, and and super uh, over processing their sound in lots of ways. And Charlie was always committed to forward momentum. He was always making it propulsive and percussive, and that's why when you listen to the Stones and you know if you were listening in 1981 compared to you know new records by other like top tier rock bands that year. The Stones were the ones who were like, let's make everything faster. Let's keep it lean and mean, focused on the groove, focused on Charlie. You know, Emotional Rescue, a great example of uh, an album where they have almost no songs
0: because songs would just get in Charlie's way. I love this concept of yours that that they, they had to reach a level where, where the, to get the songs out of the way to allow Charlie to come to the forefront.
2: Yes. And, and, and they couldn't do, you know, like, a, you know, on some girls, they have big statement songs, you know, like you know before they make me run something like that i mean emotional rescue the song itself which it the weirdness of of that cannot be overestimated that is just mick and charlie in the studio messing around mick's on a keyboard charlie's on the drums and they make this up for comedy like they think it's funny It's after hours, maybe a a refreshment of some sort has been consumed by by one or more of them. But they were not writing a song. And I, I remember somebody asked Charlie about playing it live. He said, you can't do something like that twice. You know, it wasn't even a song, but it became a number one hit. It's the kind of thing that when they didn't have anything else, they could always lean on Charlie. And so there were entire records, you know, Black and Blue, another great example where they showed up, they had no songs they were just basically like, Charlie, you know, you do some cool Charlie stuff and we will fill in the spaces around you. And they could always make a great record that way. Some of my favorite Stones records are the ones where they don't have any songs. They're just like, Charlie, you just take this one.
0: It's so funny, Rob, because I just I put on black and blue for a second in the first song, Hot Stuff. <laughs> I mean, there's two words, two words in that song. <laughs> Hot Stuff. Speaking of the Meters, my God, like he just he just went into a Meters thing. So there there you go. I mean he he was you know he kept listening,
2: like Hand of Fate on that record, which you know it's you know he's like I'm going to do a country kind of shuffle, and it's you know and of course it's very Charlie eyes. You wouldn't listen to it and think of it as a country song. I I think he was listening to Leonard Skinner when you know when he came up with that beat. The hand of
5: fate.
2: There's no song per se. There's no no chorus. No like, it's, it's they're basically responding to this Charlie groove with this kind of collection of musical ideas, and it's just fascinating to hear how he could inspire the whole
0: band that way. Hank, there's this peculiarity of Charlie's playing that people point to. Uh, it's almost a cliche to point it to it, but I, I guess he didn't play the hi hat. At the same moment when he that he played the snare, he would always stop playing the hi hat, which is a very strange thing to do. And the fact that it, it didn't screw with his groove is very interesting to me. It makes no sense to me because that's the first. I mean, you, if you're at the most basic level, if you're keeping eighth notes on on the hi hat and then you're like you're hitting on the backbeat, that's like that's just how you play. But he did this weird thing. What what's the deal with that? What what do you make of that?
6: Yeah, I, I've been puzzling over that a lot. I've also been listening to the records closely, and, and it's not on all the records. Like There are definitely some of the earlier, like the 70s, stuff. you can listen, and that hi-hat is going and he's not sort of pulling his hand away, as, as you can see. There's actually some really... The, the footage that I keep come, going back to is on that uh the Martin Scorsese documentary, that Shine a Light. There was... And I don't know where this comes from, but there are these sort of drum cam clips, which I would encourage anyone to check out. I've just been... I, I wish the whole show was like that, because I would really love to watch him do that. But in terms of that thing you're asking about, um, and Questlove pointed out to, uh, to he talked to Corey Grow, our colleague, a fascinating tribute from Questlove, but... I cannot sit here and tell you like what the effect of that is. It's more it's 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 more just like a visual quirk. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't I don't know how much like sonic effect that actually has because you can see him kind of miming his his right hand on the hi hat as though he were going to hit it, but he pulls it away, and it's just one of these strange sort of little kind of quirks of him that makes him like kind of a very like human player, even even while he's in some ways he had a metronomic quality. But it's just another little like quirk of his humanity, and I think that. Just that simple quirk really gets at the fact that, and and this is also kind of a cliche, but I think it's worth pointing out. Drumming is, just like everything else, is becoming so much more quantized drummers mimicking a drum machine and not embracing the idiosyncrasies. And if you watch that Shine a Light footage and kind of see like, you know, his fills sometimes sound a little bit rushed. He can do these little like kind of almost slightly frantic sounding like little snare breaks or, or, or little slight hits on the tom. His playing could sound a little bit wobbly sometimes and not in a bad way, but just human. And that Daryl Jones interview I was talking about, he was talking about, you know, you could hear a wedding band play the Stones and and they might hit it right on. You need that twist in it. And it's hard to say where that comes from. You know, that quirk of the hi-hat, is it that? Is it just like this this slightly unpolished feel? Like it's hard to know where it comes from, but he, he, he kept that humanity in the playing. And like you said, I think that's what the other musicians were really Responding to and relying on
0: one thing I'm curious about, and I haven't seen anyone talk about, it, is how he adjusted to the advent of the click track, and whether that was any challenge for him, or whether that was just something he he moved into without a problem. But people people forget the extent to which all the stuff, uh, you know, in the '60s and certain into the '70s was recorded without a click, and it meant that the sense of time itself was created entirely by, you know, the musicians in the room and, and that, that Keith and, and I would say that the thing of Keith and Charlie, particularly pulling and pushing at each other for the tempo and time is, is a lot of what makes the stones. And I also wonder whether, you know, introducing a, at the extent to which introducing a click could destroy that too. It, it seems like they, it seems like it never did, but it seems perilous to me.
2: We were talking before about Al Jackson Jr. Who, you know, it, it to me, like he and Charlie are are the, the rock drummers and they both had that sense of like their timekeeping was so different from anybody else's. And that's why, I mean, it's a weird thing with the stones that, you know, there's some songs people cover, but it's weird how rare, you know, people will cover a stone song, not as a tribute, but trying to do the song. A lot of it's just because the Charlie stuff is, is just not duplicable. And it, But like he and Al Jackson, like they almost had, you can always tell it's them just in terms of how they are keeping the time. And it's like to imagine Charlie with a click track is is almost obscene.
6: You know, something that keeps coming to mind, that you know that that story that keeps circulating about about Charlie sort of like you know punching Mick and like you know I, I'm not your drummer you're my singer that whole thing it's very interesting because it's like that seems that seems to be him in almost like a Ginger Baker kind of way asserting like no I'm the I'm the you know I'm the guy or something it's almost this macho gesture but then the the playing is is it's like he had a sense of himself and a sense of his importance but that manifested not in like a macho way but in kind of like I'm gonna lay back way if that makes any sense it's an odd story because it doesn't reflect like what we know of his playing how
0: that's right and he and he really emphasized that you know there was a period of his life and uh, you know I think it's for anyone it's It's a little bit of a cautionary tale that he had a period in his forties when all of a sudden he developed a, a drug and alcohol problem it's It's a reminder that you're never too old to screw your life up for a while uh out of nowhere, so I've always found that a chilling uh bit, but it, you know it, it was out of character he was drunk, and it was during a period when he was so i feel like people have perhaps been harping on that a bit too much because it he himself said it was out of character however, don't annoy him, which would fair enough. I think that's why it's a story that people love because it's out of character i mean.
2: Nobody would tell a story like that about Keith Moon because it happened three or four times a day. Um, whereas <laughs> with Charlie, it's fam- the detail. I think the detail that makes it a great story. That that's why people harp way too much on this story. Is is the detail of him putting on a suit in order to do it. That he gets out of bed and dresses up in a suit to go upstairs and punch
0: the singer. that That's the distinctive Charlie touch that makes it a Charlie story. To be fair, I'm sure if he had to, you know, go down to uh, get an envelope from the front desk, he would have dressed the same way. So, I, I'm not sure, you know. Uh, I You know, I did want to say just a very basic thing, which is I do remember the – I didn't see the Stones. I saw the Stones for the first time in, I think, 1994. And – when I did, what I was really struck by was the number of people actually dancing. Because in all the rock shows and stuff I had been to at that point, no one was dancing like that. You didn't dance at a at a Who concert, you know. You do, good luck, you know. Even without Keith Moon, good luck. So it's but the extent to which it was it returned rock to that or they never had to return because it would always been there, but it was that primal thing of it being dance music. And it just was such a reminder to me. It's like, Oh, right. That's the thing, you know? And it's, it's, it's still actually it, but it's more unusual than you'd think. I just think it's kind of an essential
6: It's a fantastic point. And also, I know, I know, again, our Corey Groh just talked to Lars Ulrich, who mentioned, you know, the idea that like, it was Charlie that was making Mick dance as well. And, And when you see that incredible physicality, that's coming from that kind of circuit right from Charlie. But I think I think also that, you know, to your point about dance music, I think that Charlie Watts represents like this common root of all this popular music, like we think about jazz and rock as sort of like these you know bifurcated things or whatever but it's like Charlie's coming out of a time when jazz was dance music as well like to, that's the role of the drummer for him it's like making people making people move and these these distinctions between these styles are fairly irrelevant when you get to the point of a Charlie Watts and I think that I wonder how many more drummers out there there are where that all those are so converged in one person aside from you know a Ringo or something like that like we're really getting to the end of that generation where all that stuff was so commonly linked
0: I mean, look, we were lucky enough for many years, you know, for decades after the Beatles broke up, for decades and decades, you could go and see the Rolling Stones. Like, sure, Bill Wyman wasn't there, you know, Brian Jones wasn't there either, but it still was the Stones. As long as Charlie is there, you could pretty much say that you saw this thing that had changed the world that it was right in front of your eyes. And and that, uh, you know, while I, I kind of hope that they still do play, and I think they'll be great with Steve Jordan but it won't be that Stones. And I, I think we were really lucky, those of us who were born a little later, that we we got to see that. And I think that's part of as much as we're mourning for Charlie in particular, it's it's also hard not to, to mourn that, that, that connection to the original thing.
2: Yeah. And he never lost that. And even if you went to see, you know, it, it turns out the Stones shows from the summer of 2019, those were the last stone shows so i was thinking about the last time i ever saw charlie play with the stones i was like god that was like his last show ever was just a couple weeks later him playing honky tonk women another great example of a song that is barely a song except it's just charlie do your thing and we'll fill in the parts around you like and that's basically what honky tonk women is and When Charlie was playing that song, it never reached a point where people were sitting back and going, oh, I remember this one. This brings back fond memories. Like it was a, you know, get up and move song. And Charlie took pride in that. He cared deeply about that, you know, that ethic. And and like you said, you know, making Mick dance, you know, and making sure everybody was dancing to that one. He never surrendered an inch of that.
6: Yeah. And I think, I think watching that again, watching that, um, that shine a light thing, like, yeah, somehow this this incredibly, you know, band of incredibly old guys, like the show still feels like wild. It still feels like this weird, like wired edge to it. And that is Mick, sure. And that is Keith, sure. But, you know, again, like where, where is that pulse of that coming from? You know what I mean? Like you're saying it doesn't feel like an oldies show, like somehow, and that has to have something to do with Charlie, right? Yeah. And because we've been talking about, you know, like the Beatles and Ringo,
2: you know, like you go see Ringo and his all-star band and Ringo is drumming and drumming fantastically, for a large part of the show. And when he's not drumming, he's up and dancing. He's, you know, it's something about, I, I don't know what it is. These drummers, they age like so gracefully because they don't lose touch with the physicality and the vitality of it. And that sense of rhythm, I mean, it's really amazing like how we're seeing this age of, of drummers just fantastically aging with just almost insane reserves of vitality. But Charlie Watts, absolutely that never lost
0: the stroke. Thanks so much to Rob Sheffield and Hank Steamer. That was our show for today. We tried to do a little bit of justice to the great Charlie Watts, sending thoughts out to his family, and to his bandmates, to fans everywhere. And that's our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are, of course, a podcast. Download Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. That truly is always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.